Hey guys, this is Brett. I'm the lead pastor at Engage City Church right here in Spruce Grove, Alberta, Canada. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to listen. We love you and we hope you enjoy this. All right, buckle up. This is a message called The F Word. It's great to have you here in church today. I'm going to do my best to wrap up this series on prayer. And the great thing about prayer is that every time I talk about it, people are like, no, please don't talk about it. Because prayer is like going to the gym. You know that you should, but you don't want to go because it's intimidating and there's all these people. Plus, you think about it and then from getting you off the couch to the car is a real struggle uh, to get to the gym. And the same thing is true with prayer. We, we think we should, we know we should, but we're a little intimidated by it. And we don't have to be because Jesus gave us this incredible tool. You know, in Colossians 1, we get a behind-the-scenes uh, glimpse or we get a little bit of footage behind the scenes for through him, God created everything, him being Jesus. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Ephesians 6 reads just like this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So the good news is the universe is not conspiring against you. The bad news is principalities and powers of darkness are. Uh, the Everyone's just okay with that? Uh, the good news... The even better news is that Jesus made and created the every single principality in power, and he is already won. We're literally playing out garbage time at the end of the game when you've already won. The score's already in. We know that Jesus is the king, and he's victorious, and he's come back. He's coming back to take us all uh, back into a new place called the new heaven and the new earth, and it's going to be amazing. But before we get there, he's given us some tools to make it through this life And he's given us some weapons and some strategies. And one of those weapons, tools, and strategies is this thing that we call prayer. And Jesus wanted to make it really simple for us. So in some of his earliest teachings, he just dropped it on us. He's like, hey, this is how you do it. If you want to know how to pray, you just say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be the name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. You just say that real fast. 14 times, then you're good. That's not what he said. In fact, he said the opposite of that. He said, you know what prayer is not? Prayer is not the repetitious babbling of religious people. And then Jesus has a mic drop moment where he says, prayer is not the repetitious babbling, uh, just saying words over and over and over again as if something's going to happen. That's what other religions do, and we don't do that. Mic drop moment. You can get mad at Jesus, not me. And then he says, you know what else it's not? It's not about showing everybody how spiritual you are by praying really loud in a public place. Because what used to happen was the religious leaders of the day would go out on the street corner and start praying at the top of their lungs as people were coming into church just so that everyone would know how spiritual and awesome they are. Jesus said, hey, guess what? That's not what this is about. Because all the reward that you will ever get is people thinking that you're spiritual if that's how you approach prayer. Instead, come to your father and understand that he already knows what you need before you even ask. So he says, come to him and say, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, come to the kitchen table and have a conversation with your dad. Have a conversation with your dad. He says, give us this day our daily bread. If you haven't noticed, we've been going literally line by line through this bad boy. Give us this day our daily bread and... Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
If you haven't figured it out already, today I'm talking about the least fun F word. <laughs> Forgiveness. It's the least fun. The most fun is food. I don't know what you're thinking. Clearly. To provide some context, I want to flash us back to 59 BC. You're all aware of what happened in 59, sorry, 597 BC. Anyone's aware of what happened? Yeah. This is when it was essentially the world was on the edge of a world war, and Israel was caught in the middle of this war with the major nations of the day each battling out for total domination. Assyria and Babylon were fighting it out to rule the world. In 597 BC, the king of Israel, King Jehoiachim, surrenders the city of Israel and surrenders the nation to another country called Babylon. In that country, what they would do is they would take the king and they would begin to exile him. Then they'd exile all his, uh, his upper society, all the, the, the finest citizens. And one by one, they would empty out a city and repopulate it with their people, spreading out families, people, cousins, everyone to different cities and different places to be indoctrinated to the culture of the land and of the day. So they would lose their identity, they would lose their place, and they would essentially assimilate into the culture of the day. Conquered, crushed, defeated, processed, and assimilated. The people of God were waiting for a word from God, and God sends them a word through the prophet Jeremiah. These are his words. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Now, this is not the word that they were looking for. What they were looking for was, I'm going to send a bomb. I'm going to kill all these people and you will rise up and be the victorious nation. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for plant a garden, eat the fruit. They're like, Lord, this is a little weak. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you're mighty and you're great, but this word is weak. Build homes and plant gardens. It's a little weak. Couldn't you like, couldn't we just wipe some blood on like the doorposts and you just pass by and kill everybody? Then we'll take over the city. We're like, yeah, people of God. He's like, how about you plant a nice garden and eat the food from it? He's like, you're under house arrest anyways. You need to pass the time. Marry people, make babies, multiply. You've got all the time in the world. Don't dwindle away. No, no time like the present to make those babies and grandchildren. And you're like, what? This is the prophetic word from God? You want us to stay home and make babies? Yeah. All right. Deal. <laughs> then he says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city. It took you a while. <laughs> This is the 12 o'clock service, right? Am I confused? Okay. <laughs> Work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Work for the peace and prosperity. God, I don't want peace in this city. I want you to murder everybody because that's what good Christians want. We want you to murder our enemies. Vengeance is yours, Lord. We're giving it to you. You kill them. That's what we want. <laughs> Literally, we want them to die. I'm, and you think I'm like trumping this up. Literally, these, these people were 
being separated. Their families ripped apart, moved to city to city to city. Some of them were being killed. Some of them were being used as slaves. Others of them were being indoctrinated into another form of government, another religion. If you didn't worship their God, they would burn you in a fiery furnace or throw you into a lion's den. That's literally what we're talking about. It wasn't like good times, and God's like, just plant a garden, guys. It's totally great. Work for the peace and prosperity. I can't work for the peace and prosperity when I think I'm going to die tomorrow. God says, no, no, no. The welfare of this, of, of this city will determine your welfare. Pray for this city. God, I don't want you to do that. You know what he dropped on them when he says work for the peace and prosperity? He used this word shalom. Turn to somebody and say shalom. shalom. Now turn to the person you're avoiding and say shalom in your home. <laughs> he dropped this word shalom, which literally means like the universal flourishing. He's like, work for the universal flourishing of the city. Hey, God, how about I don't work for the success and universal flourishing of the people who are entrapping my people? He's like, no, no, I got a different plan. How about you work for the universal flourishing of the city? Just like plant a great garden and eat some vegetables. Make babies. Live here. Live in this place. Do not dwindle away. You're like, God, I don't don't like this plan. I don't like this plan. He's like, see, I see things in a different way than you see them. I view things in a different way than you do. He's like, you need to live and flourish and work for the universal flourishing of your captor. God, I don't know. I don't know. You see, when God dropped that phrase, give us this day our daily bread, he used the plural word. He didn't use the singular word, which means that we are supposed to look out for one another. Our. Give us this day. Our daily bread. He began to expand our understanding. We're so singular. We're so focused on, on us and, and what God could do for us and the good things for us. He says, no, no, it's not about just you. It's about it's us. It's about the people of God. It's all of us together. In Acts chapter 2, the greatest era of the church, we think, we believe, They were known for their radical generosity, which most of us attribute to communism. But the truth is, God is so much bigger than political ideology. That's why anybody can come here. Anyone can come here, no matter what your political stripes or allegiances are, because God is so much greater than your best thought politically. God does not exist in red and blue. He doesn't exist in, in two or three different parties. God is so far above any of those parties. He's like, no, we are here for us, for the universal flourishing of one another. Give us this day our daily bread. God, help us take care of one another. So if Seb needs, needs some braces, then I know that Jaden's got a TV that he could sell that's extra so that Seb could have the money to pay for his braces, because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. People had extra stuff. They sold it. They gave other people money. Everyone was taking care of one another because they actually believed that when we prayed this prayer, give us this day our, our daily bread, we were taking care of one another. God was calling us to a new level of community and a new level of peace, which was defined by the universal flourishing of everybody in and around our community. But Jesus pulled a fast one on us. He said, give us this day our daily bread. And then he said this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And. See, we would like to separate forgiveness from the provision of God. And yet God wanted to put them together. So he left this word, and. Like, whoa. Are you saying 
that God can't provide for me if I don't forgive people. No, I'm not saying that because God's bigger than that. What I am saying is that it is possible that I have limited the power and the provision of Jesus Christ at work in my life because I am carrying unforgiveness in me. Because this thing called unforgiveness has been haunting many of us for a long time, and it's been eating us from the inside out. See, every time you carry unforgiveness, you're actually giving up prime real estate in your head and in your heart. You're giving up some like amazing creative domain because this person now or this thing or this action lives in your head and it lives in your heart. And it feels like at times it's haunting you. But the question is, is it actually haunting you or are you holding on to it? See, because the truth is what we like to do with those things and those offenses, those unforgiveness, it feels good to hold on to it because we use some other Bible verses out of context. We say, God, vengeance is yours. So I'm just going to hold on to this unforgiveness. I'm going to give it to you, but hold on to this nice part so that when I see you rain terror on them, I'm just going to be like, ooh, that feels good. Because it does feel good to our human nature to watch somebody shrivel up under the vengeance of God. You're like, that sounds harsh. You were thinking it. (laughs) But this thing, this idea, this, this thing called unforgiveness, it actually begins to define us more than we would even like to believe. You see, because let's say just for example, that, that I don't like Keith. This is Keith, everybody. Keith, why don't you stand up and wave? Let's say, you can sit back down. Now, the reason that I have unforgiveness in my heart is because I can't grow an amazing beard like Keith. Like, I try my best, but I just, you know, it's just, I can't live at that level. It's difficult. And so I see Keith, and I'm like, every single time I see Keith, I'm like, and I'm just mad. And he just rubs it in my face. He's like, you know whose beard is better than yours? I'm like, no. He's like, mine. (laughs) So I carry this unforgiveness in my heart because I'm just haunted by the beautiful beard. And I'm like, God, I I just want that in my life. But Keith is deeply offending me time after time after time. So let's say that I know Keith's favorite place to go for lunch, and it just happens to be my favorite place to go for lunch. So guess what happens? I stop going there for lunch because I don't want to go there because Keith's there. So I just go somewhere else. Now, it might have been my routine to go there every day for six years, but I stop and I break and I change my routine because Keith is there and Keith is, is sitting in the seat of unforgiveness that's haunting my mind and it's plaguing my soul and I stop going where Keith goes. And let's say that Keith likes to play softball and I like to play softball. And I'm like, I can't join the same team that I joined because Keith's on that team, so I join another team, but then I might see him at the games and I'm gonna hit a ball in his face if I'm given the opportunity. So I'm like, I'm just gonna to move to Stony Plain to another team so that I'm not going to hit him in the face in exact vengeance. I'm starting to change the whole course and direction of my entire life and pattern of behavior because of one person who, who I'm holding a grudge against. So instead of Jesus leading my life, the unforgiveness that I have towards Keith is leading my life. And I reframe every choice around avoiding him instead of following Jesus. So you can say that it's not affecting you. It doesn't bother you. So why is it that you do everything in your power not to see that person? 
not to talk to that person, not to go that way. You see that phrase that Jeremiah left with the people in captivity says, do not dwindle away. God says to you and he says it to me. Do not dwindle away. Do not shrink back in your life. Don't cut out parts of your identity. Don't part out, cut out parts of your, your promise. Don't cut out parts of your activity. Because think about this. If Keith comes to this church and I come to this church and I can't, I can't come here because Keith's coming here. And if Keith's here and I can't be here, then either one of us has got to leave. And since I've got the microphone, I'm kicking him out. And guess what? That's not godly either. So it's really changing the entire course of my life. And in doing so, it's changing the entire course and direction of his life. But God says, don't dwindle away. Don't shrink back. Because the more energy I put into holding on, on to unforgiveness, the more it becomes a part of who I am. I give it more and more real estate, more and more space to grow, more and more space for it to occupy this deep part of who I am. It becomes a big part of my identity is not being anywhere near that beautiful beer. God says, don't dwindle away. Unforgiveness eats away at you from the inside out and keeps you from being who you were created, be, created to be. It literally feasts on your doubts and your insecurities. Have you ever tried to teach a child to water ski? No? So I decided when I was like seven years old that I should learn how to water ski, and we used to go every summer to Kelowna, and <laughs> my parents bought these beginner water ski sets, and in case you're wondering what they look like, they're yellow, bright yellow, because a child thing should be bright yellow, and they're just short version of skis, and normally what happens when you're learning to water ski is that you do the splits, so what they decided was they're just going to tie them together. So they tied together the water skis. So you're tied and bound together. You can't, like, that's about all you can do. And then, because your little arms aren't capable to take the pull of the boat, they tied the handle to the water skis. And then they tied the rope to the water skis. And somebody in the boat has to hold on, and you trust your life to them. And they're generally supposed to pay attention, and when you fall, they let go. And then they pick you up, and you try again and again and again. But what happens when you're learning is that what I've discovered is the person in the boat doesn't pay as much attention as maybe they should. And so when you yell, hit it, and you think you're a boss, and they go, Mrah! and you go up, and you go straight forward, and then you go right in the water, and, like, and you just go under the water for an undetermined length of time. Really... <laughs> The person in the boat's like, hey, can you just grab me another Coke? If you could just grab me one of those. And uh, yeah, that would be, yeah, that, uh, they're fine. That would be great. And then, you know, he needs to learn eventually. And eventually they let go of the boat, but not before you were stuck motorboating behind the motorboat. You know, like for a really, really long time. You know, you're like, your nasal passages are cleared out. Your sinuses are good. But there's never another desire to learn how to water ski except for me because I'm a sucker for punishment. So I did it again and again and again and again. But the truth is what I did in that moment was I was not really water skiing. I put my life in somebody else's hands. When I hold on to unforgiveness, I put my future into somebody else's hands. 
and I let them hold on to the rope. And the truth is, I just get dragged around. I get water in my face. I get uh, just beat red eyes. I get sinuses cleared out because I've put my future into somebody else's hands, which means I trust more in the person that I'm harboring unforgiveness with than I am in Jesus. I trust them way more because they're shaping my life. They're shaping my direction. They're shaping my future. Jesus says, walk this way. You're like, hey, I can't. Why? Keith's over there. Can't do it. He's like, so who do you trust more? Well, I trust my hate and Keith, like, a lot. <laughs> so you feel stuck. So you feel trapped. So you feel isolated. I wonder it's because you put more trust and faith in the feeling of unforgiveness in somebody else than you have in the plans and the future that Jesus has for you. Maybe it's just me. When, uh, when I was growing up, there's this info, like PSA, public service announcement on TV. Keith, you wouldn't have seen this. I know that for sure. Um, he's from India, so you would not have seen the same thing. But it was this creepy puppet creature. And I should really get Emily to come see it because she knows every word. But it would sing, don't you put it in your mouth. Don't you put it in your mouth until you ask someone you love. Until you ask someone you love. You know, it's not it. Maybe you should come sing it then. Emily, Emily. No, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. She's going to harbor unforgiveness towards me if we make her come forward. But there's this silly thing because the reality is you are what you eat. Whatever you consume, whatever you feed begins to define who you are and begins to, to, to change who you are. So the truth is if you just feed yourself a constant steady diet of unforgiveness and bitterness, guess what's going to come out? Guess what's going to come out? This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. In other words, Jesus does not keep score because Jesus is the embodiment of love. And he passes these words to us. He says, listen. I created you in my image. I'm transforming you each day from glory to glory into my image. If we're going to look more and more like Jesus, then we have to learn how to not keep score. Jesus does not keep score. See, we love this idea for us. We just don't like passing it on. I love Lamentations 3. His mercies are new every morning. He wipes the slate clean every single day. I love that thought. I love the idea. He's like, hey, how about you do that uh, with your hate for Keith? I'm like, no. I don't want it gone every morning because it actually gives me strength every morning because every morning I get up and I want to prove that person wrong. It's like I have a chip on my shoulder and I use it to be my fountain of strength. You know, Taylor Hall, he, he won an award this year. What did he win? Con Smythe? Is that what he won? What did he win? I don't know. What did he win? Yeah, most valuable to his team. The truth is Taylor Hall was not the most valuable to our team when he was here. He was not. He was a loser. We, we lost the entire time. We still lose now, but he was a loser. And he got traded, or yeah, in a great trade. Um, one for one, he got traded. And guess what? He went to the New Jersey Devils, and he decided, I'm going to show those losers in Edmonton what a winner looks like. And he used that chip on his shoulder. I would say he harbored a good amount of unforgiveness. 
And he used it to propel him to a career-defining season. The truth is, you and I use the strength that we feel from unresolved unforgiveness to move ourselves forward every day. Because it makes us feel strong and it makes us feel powerful, especially if we feel like we were right. And we go, I'm going to show you what I can do. And you think that it's a healthy thing. Because you think that it's giving you all the energy you need to accomplish the plans and the purposes that are in front of you. But sooner or later, that very same thing that you perceive to be strength From incredible strength, you will fall into the depths of incredible weakness, overcome with nothing more than anger, bitterness, self-doubt, anxiety, and in the pits of depression. Why? Because you refuse to stop keeping score. You know, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Like, do you feel like seven times is sufficient? I'm sh- Jesus didn't say this out loud, but I'm sure in Jesus' head, he's like, well, you're going to betray me three times. So it's got to be more than three times. He says, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. He couldn't do the math, which means it was infinitesimal to infinity and beyond the number of times that we should extend forgiveness because that's the number of times that Jesus extends forgiveness to us. We love it for us, but we just don't like it for anybody else. We love the thought that Jesus just washes us clean every day, but why can't we pass it on? Why? Because we're so concerned about my daily bread that we forgot that we were praying for our daily bread. And our daily bread was praying for and believing for the universal flourishing of our captor, which is the person that's living in my head and in my heart who's overwhelming me because I will not forgive them. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Doesn't keep score. Now I wonder if we're wrestling with anxiety and depression as a culture, I mean at epidemic levels. I wonder if in part it's rooted right here. You see, every single day we can wake up. I mean, I won't even ask for a show of hands of how many people check their phone is the first thing they do when they wake up but every single day you've got this thing that stares back at you and haunts you and tells you that you're not good enough because you watch that insta story about that dad taking his kids to the zoo and you realize that you were too broke to do that and you couldn't do that and then you started putting You started putting a whole bunch of pain and shame on yourself, condemnation, because you're not a good enough dad and you're not a good enough father and you're not a good enough person to take care of those things. And you start wrestling with it just because you watched a silly story that was 15 seconds long. And you started keeping score of yourself, of all your failures and all your inadequacies, and they weren't true because it's just a comparison. And God doesn't look at you that way and your kids don't look at you that way, but you look at you that way. And so you begin begin to dig yourself a giant hole that you can't climb out of and anxiety and depression becomes your story because you're overwhelmed because you keep losing 
losing. In your mind, you're a loser, and God's just trying to pull you out. So I wonder if we sink down into a hole because we just can't stop comparing ourselves. You know, Jesus said this one thing. He says, love your neighbor. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love anybody if you don't love yourself. Now, I wonder what would happen if you talk to your neighbor the way you talk to yourself. You know, you go onto your deck, the backyard, and you see your neighbor across the fence in a neighborhood that's way too tight together. And you're like, hey, hey man, how you doing? He's like, I'm good. Great, you're a terrible father, bro. You're terrible. Like, I don't even know how you have a successful marriage because you're a joke. Because you don't make enough money and you live in that house. You drive that car. Like, how does anyone even take you seriously? You couldn't take your kids to the zoo, bro. You're clearly a failure. You know what? You're so deeply insecure. You can't even get a shirt that fits properly. And you know what? You probably should have lost that 20 pounds for sure. Get, get over to the gym immediately. Oh, you have no self-esteem to get yourself off the couch to go get there? That's cool. Just keep sitting there because you're a loser anyways. I mean, I wonder what might happen if you talk to your neighbor the way you talk to yourself. I can tell you it's not going to go well. So if you wouldn't say it to them, why do you say it to you? Right? Like if you would not say it out loud to somebody else, why do you let that be the narrative that plays over and over and over in your head and in your heart? God keeps no records of wrongs and though you're keeping score of how you can't keep up Jesus doesn't keep score and he doesn't see you in that way he sees you in a completely different way he sees you as a person who's being transformed day by day getting better day by day moving closer to him day by day and his antidote to all of this is a simple thing called forgiveness you gotta forgive yourself and you gotta forgive that other person just give some Jesus just give Jesus some room to work. That's why he dropped this on us in 1 Peter 5. Cast all your anxiety on him, him being Jesus, because he cares for you. Why don't you stand with me today? We're going to do things a little bit different. I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes all across this place. We're not going to sing a song. This is our moment right here, right now. To start that process of forgiveness. Because while I don't know the person that you have forgiven, you do. And while I've been talking, you can see their face. And you can hear their name whispering in their ears. Feel free to send us You can feel the pain. At engagechurch.ca. If you want to learn more about our church, you want Jesus to is asking you today if you would consider giving it up, letting him come in and start the healing process. The heart, the healing that you've been so desperately longing for only happened. If you're running or you're you rip out the gym right now, you got this. Go get it. Here's the crappy part. It's going to hurt because you've been holding on to it for so long that it's become a part of your identity. 
So it feels like a big piece of your heart is going to come out when you start uprooting this thing. But that's why Jesus is here, to provide the nourishment and the healing and the health required to your soul. If you would just trust him. an old song that I couldn't get out of my head while I was preparing for this message. So I'm kind of going to throw these guys under the bus a little bit. Too much heavy lifting. 
So if you think that you have to make this happen, you have to heal yourself, that's not how it works. We literally lean on the everlasting, faithful arm of Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We trust in him to, to walk us through these stages and these seasons. Unforgiveness does not, forgiveness doesn't just happen in a moment. It could be a daily journey. But Jesus is faithful to lead us through. If you're here today, never made a decision to trust Jesus. You've never made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never put your hope in him. Today I want to create an opportunity for you to do just that. Because you can find the healing, you can find the wholeness, you can find the plan and the purpose that you've been searching for for every day of your life when you put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's not like anyone else you've ever known. He's never going to leave you. His goodness and mercy will follow you and surround you all the days of your life. So if you're here today and you want to make a choice to follow Jesus, you might not know all of what that means or how that looks, but you want to make that decision today. And I'm going to invite everybody in the room to bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm going to count down from three. When I get to one, you just give me a quick wave. While I'm counting, every single person in this room is praying for you. Because they've been where you are. They've been going through what you've been going through. These aren't perfect people, but these are people who are following Jesus, and they're getting better every day. So if you want to start that journey with Jesus, whether it's the first time, maybe it's the 32nd time, your Heavenly Father is standing at the end of the driveway calling you home. So if you want to accept Jesus Christ into your life today, give me a wave. Three, two, one. Quick wave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Awesome. Let's repeat this prayer together. Just say this right after me out loud. Say, Dear Jesus. Dear Jesus. I need you. I need you. Right now. Right now. I need you. Now more than ever. Now more than ever. So I invite you into my life. So I invite you into my life. I invite you to be in charge. I invite you to be in I'm charge. I'm following you. I'm following you. So today, so today I give you everything. My wins. My wins. My losses. My losses. My sins. My sins. My successes. My successes. It's all yours. It's all yours. From this moment forward. From this moment forward. I'm following you. I'm following you. Jesus. Jesus. Take the wheel. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Come on, why don't we give a big round of applause for those who prayed that prayer for the very first time? Um, as Pastor Brett was talking about forgiveness and, and dealing with unforgiveness today, I just felt like the reality of that in this room is so big. Like, it's something that we all deal with, um, and it's not easy. And sometimes we have to forgive someone, and it takes a long time, like Pastor Brett said. That person, and sometimes we know that they're gonna do the same thing again, and we're gonna have to forgive them again. And one morning you're gonna wake up and you're gonna feel that God has broken that chain and that God's restorative power is you're just gonna feel Jesus' love for that person, which is a crazy thing that He gives to us. But if anyone knows how to forgive anyone, it's Jesus. Um, so there, I just wrote this down as Pastor Brett was speaking, and it says is that there's no sin that's too big or small that someone commits against you that you shouldn't forgive. I just pray that if you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, you just give it to Jesus and give it to Jesus every single day and 
up and that chain will be broken. And he wants to do that for us and he can do that for us and he will do that for us. Um, he is so great and he's so good and he loves each and every one of us. So there are three ways to give today. There are tithes and offerings. There's debit and credit out on the lobby. And then there's Tithely, the app that you can do on your phone. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Have an amazing Sunday and enjoy the rest of your day. Nothing you got, yeah. So when the politicians talk, 